welcome to The Near Memo, a weekly conversation about search, social, and commerce. What happened, why it matters, and the implications for local. Welcome back, everybody, to The Near Memo. As Mike said just a few moments ago before we began, this is Season 2, Episode (laughs) 2, or Episode 47 of our now uh, venerable podcast, where we talk about search, social, and commerce and the interaction and intersection of those. And I'm here with Mike and David, as always. And we're going to start today with a uh, a significant deal in the local space. Vendasta acquired very long-lived PPC platform, advertising platform, uh, Matchcraft. And so, David, what were your thoughts on that? Yeah, interesting interesting announcement. Uh, Matt, so for those of you who aren't familiar, Vendasta is essentially, I, I would describe them as an app store for agency tools um, where agencies that's a can... good that's a good description that's not how they started out but that's a good description so they um, they essentially operate a marketplace where agencies can kind of roll their own bundles of services and um, they work with a lot of not just agencies but uh, traditional media companies I think make up a, a decent chunk of their their customer base um, so those companies who are trying to sort of transition from like a legacy of print or other advertising types into digital marketing. And so they've got everything from, you know, website builders to email marketing, social ads, and now, um, and they sort of made their bones in the local listing space uh, way back when and sort of the late, late aughts. And so now they've added Matchcraft, which is a, as we were talking uh, before in in the green room, as it were, um, before the show, Matchcraft has been around forever, uh, paid search platform that Greg, you said was founded in 1998, same year as Google. Um, So they they essentially are one of the, I wouldn't say there's a ton of vendors left actually that that enable agencies and media companies to push geo-targeted ad campaigns at scale. Um, And so I think it's a pretty natural fit for for Vendasta in terms of a product that their agency customers need and, and will use quite a bit. Um, I, I do wonder, I haven't been in the Vendasta marketplace in, in, I don't know, a couple of years at this point, probably. I, I do wonder if, if there's going to be uh, any sort of competition issues um, in terms of, do they already have tools in their marketplace that provide a similar uh, a similar offering to Matchcraft? So that's that's the one sort of outstanding question um, that I would have. But I think from, from Vendasta's standpoint, um, even just access to the the existing Matchcraft customer base and the the opportunity to upsell them um, beyond just this you know paid search platform, I think is pretty interesting. Um, I'm not particularly bullish on the future of non Google Smart campaigns or non non LSAs um, as an ad product, but I think that the the customer base alone is an interesting play for Vendasta to make, and um, I think all of us have you know relatively I, I don't know if they're industry friends, but certainly longtime acquaintances who who um, we admire and respect on both sides of the deal, and I'm really happy for for both companies in that regard. How do you think that Vendasta will handle the enterprise client base that Matchcraft brings to the mix? I mean, as opposed, to, it's a very different client base than what Vendasta has historically dealt with. Well, the, I, I don't know if that's true. I, I agree. Because, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think yeah, that, yeah. The, it's I, I think that I think that it's a very compatible acquisition because what Matchcraft has done for the last you know m- many years has has been to sell to media companies 
that are trying to sell small business customers advertising products, digital advertising products. And Mendasta is doing a very similar thing with its with its partners, as David described. So I think that there's a there's a it's not Reese's peanut butter cup exactly, but some <laughs> some compatible uh, you know mix of services there. And what Brendan King said, and you know I did a short Q and A interview with him that's up on the site in our analysis section. What Brendan King said is that you know they they they're trying to be the end in, in solution for small businesses for their customers to enable small businesses to do kind of a complete version of digital marketing. And they were really only offering organic. I mean, they did have some paid products, I guess, but not natively. And so they were really only offering an organic uh, suite. And so this gives them a very complementary set of tools, which extend beyond Google into, you know, social channels and, and others. And so I, I think it's a, it's, you know, execution is always the key, but I think it's just in theory, it's a really good and compatible, um, you know, pairing. Yeah, and I'll say one thing, um, you know, in my experience, talking to some of these traditional media companies, I mean, they have their entire existence has been selling advertising to small businesses, yes. not marketing. And I think that right. there's a, um, you know, there is that hurdle to get over of, hey, there's, there's a there's a set of deliverables that you can do over here that are equity building and not a one time transaction that actually have you know, considerable value and a lot of appeal to small businesses based on some of the, the surveys we've seen, like, you know, the call rail survey and others. Um, and so I think that this as a, um, you know, Vendasta sort of getting it, getting in with these customers on a product that they already know how to sell, um, I think is a really smart move. I think it's a, it's like a, an easier entree um, when you're, when you have a good solution around advertising, which these companies know how to sell versus the other way around, starting them out with a listings product and a website product, and then trying to layer on ads is actually, I think, a, a harder sell for some of these media companies. So. All right. Well, so um, let's let's move on to uh, another important uh, topic, which is the kind of state of COVID, which we still are dealing with, you know, two two years out. Um, and this week, I believe it was yesterday, Mike, the, the Supreme Court, as expected, struck down the mandatory vaccine mandate for large employers, uh, but maintained it for healthcare workers. And you had some thoughts on, on what the go forward uh, move should be. for. So businesses. I have two stories. I want to give put a little bit in context. I live in a very rural area with a very low vaccination rate. We're just past 50 percent. High, heavy Trump country, 65 percent voted for Trump. So it's a very Republican area. And New York State passed a indoor mask mandate last month with fines supposedly enforced by the local health authority of up to $1,000 if businesses did not enforce it. And our local county, uh, the chairman proclaimed loudly and in public and in the press that the county was not going to be enforcing uh, un these, these man unfunded mandates. I'm not sure what's unfunded about it all. You know, it's like whatever. We weren't going to be enforcing it. So I do business with a local grocery store or was and told him I wasn't going to be able to come back in until he required masking of his employees, which was happening at the other grocery stores, which he did do once this mandate came into play. He has seen and has written letters to the editor, tremendous conflict around this. I was there the other night, not tremendous conflict but conflict. I was there the other night. He is actively engaged in enforcing this 
uh, masking mandate. And with the way they do it, which I thought was interesting, is the, the when you go in the store, you have to walk by the service desk. If the service desk sees somebody that's not masked, they then call uh, a management team who comes with masks in hand, and they meet up with the people, and they offer them free masks, of which 98% of the people take them, 99%, whatever, big number. And and these guys were ineffably polite, gentle, and kind. I thought it was amazing watching them do this in practice. And then, though, I could hear on the other side of the store an argument. The argument got closer, closer, and it was a... uh, a uh, working class guy who was arguing vociferously that his liberty and freedoms did not require that he wear a mask. And he was shouting at these two young managers and shouting at the cashier and storming out of the store. And it was stressful, uh, you know, for me, for the employees. But it was interesting. I mean, the business had done what they needed to do to make the employees safe and me safe as a customer. To the point where I'm shopping, and it cost them at least one customer that I saw when I was there, and it was stressful on the employees and other customers. So there's that. And then there's a story about United Airlines this week where 3,000 of their employees are currently sick with COVID uh, of their 47,000 employees. So that's a pretty big number, 8% or something. And yet uh, they have a vaccination requirement. and uh, before they had the vaccination requirement, they were losing one employee, losing in the sense of death, one employee a week. Their deaths have dropped to zero. And over the last several weeks, they've had no hospitalizations. And so when I take a look at these, the Supreme Court decision, which I think is largely irrelevant to most rational businesses, it's like, and I look at what United, uh, United has done, and I look at the situation I ran into last night. To me, the path for business forward has to be, has always been rigorous sanitary enforcement requirements of vaccines for the employee. I don't, you know, and, and so the companies that went to the Supreme Court, the National Federation of Independent Businesses, you know, all they're looking to do is exploit low cost labor and minimize cost, but ultimately the costs are too high. The fact that United had so few employees in the hospital, and yes, there was some temporary disruption of flights, but but the real cost is 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 death, and I think that businesses ultimately have no choice, and they're going to have to face this reality that they're going to have to require vaccinations of their employees, whether the government does or doesn't, and it's the only rational way forward. And I think United's experience demonstrates that. So, we talked about this early on, but to, to my mind, you know, the you, you talked about okay, the cost of losing, you know, this one customer in the grocery store. Um, there's a huge silent majority of customers that these businesses are missing out on, myself included, um, by not requiring vaccines and masks in order to enter. Um, and I think the airlines are number one. I can't tell you the number of times that we would have traveled uh, this year, including on our Christmas vacation uh, via plane if the airlines did require a vaccine in order to fly. Um, So I'm not sure why United, I I do credit them for this, you know, employee decision. I'm not sure why they don't uh, take it one step further. Vaccine mandates are broadly popular, something like 65% um, approval ratings. And so I actually think that they're they're missing out on a huge chunk of customers by by catering to a vocal minority. I think it's I think it's politics and I think it's fear that, you know, people will flee to other airlines that aren't requiring these 
that aren't that that don't have these rules. I mean, I agree with you. the The right thing to do, the moral position, is to is to have a vaccine requirement. I mean, it, it exists in virtually every business, every restaurant that I, you know. When I was recently in Berlin for for work. Um, every restaurant we went into had a vaccine requirement. We had to show the cards. It was no big deal, um, you know. And um, in in France, I mean, sort of famously, they're they're trying to socially ostracize anti-vaxxers, which is a kind of a controversial uh, shame and ostracize people who refuse to get vaccinated. But I think the the this raises larger philosophical questions about what do we owe to each other in a society? You know, I mean, the right has a, a completely misguided view of what liberty and freedom are. Um, you know, the idea that uh, that I don't owe anything to anybody else around me and everything is my decision is is a completely ignorant um, and and he shouted that the guy in my conversion shouted something to that effect as he went out the door. yeah he probably you know that's some some right wing talking point that that everybody seems to pair interestingly you know, this I, is- when this first occurred in our county I looked up the life the history of life liberty and pursuit of happiness and Thomas Jefferson originally wrote a pre, uh, say, uh, pre- property uh, preservation of life uh, not just yeah. life but uh, protection of life and protection of property were, were part of that. But protection right. of life was comes before liberty. And, uh, you know, in, in a situation where the government and society wants to do that, it's hard to think that liberty can supersede uh, life, right? The no harm principle is pretty clear in all of religion and philosophy and love thy neighbor sort of stuff. Even Christian theology, it's integrated, really baked in, and yet somehow... Like you say, this idea of liberty at an individual level is well. I mean, this is this is this is a, this is a, a college course on what is it? What is freedom and uh, what is liberty? I took a, I took a class in college called you know politics and freedom, and it was a really complicated class with a lot of heavy duty stuff in it. Well, I just and, ordered the you know, Federalist Papers this. to try to understand what they really were thinking. So I don't know. We'll see. I'll report back next week. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I, I think I think yeah, we can have a special session on the Federalist Papers. I, we have to start a, a spinoff podcast at this point on uh, yeah. the Federalist Papers uh, esoteric- intersect, intersecting with local search. But, absolutely, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. All right. Moving on. So, so um, speaking of speaking of, uh, well, the, the reality well, is that gonna, local search is liberty. not independent of all these bigger questions in our society and our life. And right. it's where the rubber meets the road in all too many cases, right? And and that's right. my point, is that businesses need to do what you say, David. If the government isn't going to do it, then businesses will be forced to. And it's the only, it's the only ethical and moral and reasonable business course forward. Well, I, I mean, it's absolutely crazy that these sort of battles have to play out on an individual basis, you know, that store managers and, and employees have to contend with people who could very easily become violent. I mean, you know, there have been violent incidents of people coming back with weapons or, or physically beating up uh, people who, who try to enforce these mandates. Well, this guy was and, verbally and, you know, violent, that's, that's for sure. Yeah, but I mean, these days, you just have no idea who you're dealing with. And so that guy could come back 15 minutes later with a gun and shoot, shoot the place up. I mean, that's, that's entirely possible in the world today. And it's really terrible. <clears throat> now, <laughs> that's a pretty horrific uh, Aren't you kind glad of scenario, we didn't end on COVID? It's, 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 
<laughs> yes, yes. So, so I want to talk about the new. Um, I want to talk about the new uh, TLDR uh, terms of service uh, bill. That I don't know what the formal uh, name of it is. Working its way through Congress, it's not yet uh, in a position to be signed into law. But there's apparently a high degree of bipartisan support. The idea is to simplify terms of service. These sort of click wrap contracts, boilerplate contracts that go on for pages and pages with fine print that everybody just clicks right through. Next, next, agree, agree, agree. And nobody reads because it's sort of pointless and you have no bargaining power, et cetera. And so the proposal is to sort of um, create a, a version of Apple's privacy nutrition label with essential terms uh, in a kind of easy to understand, very prominent uh, place. And I think that that's very, very good. Um, there are a couple of kind of caveats. One would be, um, do, is it going to matter? Meaning, will people make different choices if they see that stuff? And um, this is a point, I think, made by TechDirt, an article uh, on this topic that appears in TechDirt. The real issues are are, are competition and, and alternatives, right? So we do want to surface important terms so that people can understand them. But if people have no alternatives in the market or, or effectively don't, what, is it, what does it matter? Yeah, and even with Apple's labels, they're not highly visible when you go to download an app. They're below the fold. And so it's not just having information there. It's having it there readily visible right before you're ready to make that click where you can get that information in a summarized way and then a choice. So. It's a step, but I mean, if without, somebody, a, if, without a privacy context for any of it, it's all kind of, it's all kind of performance. Yeah. But even beyond that, I feel like a lot of these terms are on sites that we really don't have a choice but to use, like our insurance right. carrier and our bank and our, you know, whatever, just things, things that we need. Yeah, exactly, things that we need in our everyday lives. And you know, I don't know that clearer terms is going to get us to say, oh, well, I'm not going to. I'm not going to deposit my check today because you're going to be, you know, sending that information to Equifax or whatever. So even if right. I know that, right. I'm still I mean, going to do it. I, I think I think sort of on balance, it's better for people to have simple access to this information, sort of all other things aside. So this is a good impulse and a good a good uh, initiative. However, I, I think it will have limit, very limited impact in the in the real world because I think people just are compelled. You know, this goes back to this whole issue of trust that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. You know, more and more people distrust these services that they use every single day, but they continue to use them because they're effectively locked in in one form. Well, if you take a look at HIPAA, which is an example of a private, you know, people's medical privacy was supposed to be guaranteed, where you effectively have to sign away privacy every time you go to the doctor. Otherwise, you can't get the services at some level. It just shows you that even a framework for privacy often doesn't work because of the pressures against it, right? So it's like, you know, I don't, I don't know how many HIPAA giving away, you know, agree to share information forms I had to sign just to get basic health care. So it, even if there were a more stringent privacy environment, David's point may still be a problem in that you have to to get the service. You may still have to give them up, given the amount of power the various players in this context have. Although at the margins, you know, I mean, there was a there was a I think a PR this week that um, DuckDuckGo had crossed uh, billions searches, the precise number. 
Yeah, billion searches. Hundred million, which is day, nothing in a day or a week or something. Hundred. Yeah, nothing, nothing really compared to Google, but it indicates that there is now some momentum, and people are are starting to consciously make alternative choices um, for for rational reasons like like privacy. So, you know, for some percentage of the population, this might be meaningful, but for the mainstream, it probably it probably isn't. But it's still good to have this information. More information is better in a digestible format. So. David, would you change your behavior based on this uh, this kind of idea? If you, I get, had, if you were confronted by some really objectionable terms. If I had a choice, right, if it was something that I was trying for the first time just to see what it was like, then, you know, I might decline to try that out. But um, in most cases, these are just essential. Ser- in most of the worst cases, anyway, these are essential services. I mean, uh Mortgages being probably the worst offender. I mean, they share your information with absolutely everybody. But what are you going to do when yeah. you're, you know, you, right. you you need to sign the papers and um, and you you just have to agree to the terms. You're not going to shop your mortgage around to somebody else at the last minute. So, well, and nobody and nobody really has any different terms. Right. You know, substantially different. Right. I, I mean, that's that's the mo- that's the ultimate example of of not reading a contract. Right. I mean, I was a lawyer. For um, uh, you know, practicing for almost ten years, and we we refinanced recently, not that long ago. And you know, the guy shows up at your house or the woman, the notary, and they've got some stack of like you know three hundred pages thick. or whatever it is. It's very thick, and it's like sign here, sign here, sign here, and you just want to get the thing done as quickly as yep. possible, you know. And there's really no conversation. Maybe there's one or two questions about something, but for the most part, it's just like. You're you're moving through the sheets, and then they take the papers away, and you don't ever look at it again. No. And it got yeah. that's the world it got we're worse living after in. 2008, right? I mean, it's just because uh, yeah. I mean that used to, that used to be called, if I remember correctly, in law school, the a contract where you have no ability to negotiate terms, you just have to take it or leave it. I think is called a contract of adhesion. Mm-hmm. And that is the world we live in today. Right. You know, originally the concept, you know, back to the Federalist Papers, originally the concept <laughs> of contracts. Podcast. Yeah. Originally the contract concept of contracts is that you have two parties of roughly equal negotiating or bargaining power, and they come to some quote unquote meeting of the minds about terms. And that is not what's happening in our world. You know, maybe it happens on a very small scale with people where there is kind of roughly equal bargaining power. But all these giant companies that we deal with every single day, they just say, here are our terms, take it or leave it. And there's absolutely no negotiation that can happen. Right. I, I will say the one the, um, the one thing that struck me on reading that, that TLDR article, if there is a sort of universal set of standards, standard terms that can be used. And you can advertise that we are a, you know, green rated terms of service, as opposed to a red rated terms of service, you know, putting that up front on your website at the, in the footer where you link to your terms, um, you know, maybe something that, um, that, that can gain some momentum. I mean, we're, we at near media are using the word, essentially the WordPress automatic, terms of service, which they license under Creative Commons, right? So if you could get a sort of mass movement of standard terms for standard types of uh, online engagements, that might move the needle on this somewhat. I mean, I could imagine it with with uh, something like a credit card, right? Where you're, where you're applying for a credit card, they're competing offers, 
and you've got a choice of five or six. You know, it really matters in an environment where there's choice, and you can see very clearly what the differences are. We won't sell your data, or we have this beneficial term versus these other guys who are going to put you into binding arbitration and, you know, come come in the night and take your family away. You know, whatever it is. And so in that kind of scenario, it would it would matter. But in situations where you've got a monopoly provider or a quasi-monopoly provider, or you just don't have the ability to make alternative choices, it doesn't really make a difference. Um, so we've come to the end of another exciting and uplifting podcast. Um, there's, uh, of course, lots more to talk about, as always, and we didn't get to everything that, uh, you know, is happening this week. So subscribe to Near Media, where we try and uh, capture uh, as much of that as we can. And we'll be back next week with more exciting adventures. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining David, Mike, and Greg. To stay on top of the latest developments in local, subscribe to our newsletter at nearmedia.co. We'll see you next week.